This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. We've got a great program for you today. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind everybody that this show is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, media, and society, and how they all intersect with each other. And if you like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. And we're also available on Substack as well. So we do appreciate everybody who supports the show. So again, patreon.com slash discoverflux, or you can just go to theoryofchange.show and there's a link to the Substack URL as well. So please do support us. And I really do appreciate everybody who helps out. Okay. All right. So let's get into today's program. Artificial intelligence is all over the news of late. People are using it to compose silly poems and make images of dogs driving cars. There's also a lot of hype for the technology, with some experts claiming that we're on the verge of sentient robots seeking to destroy us all. And then there are others who claim that generative AI out there like ChatGPT and MidJourney are nothing but toys and just useless creators of junk. The truth, however, is somewhere in between. It is actually true that ChatGPT, Google's Bard, or Microsoft's Sydney function for Bing are not sentient in any way, but they still can be incredibly useful. And a lot of people are already using them to do incredible things. In fact, even if these technologies never improve, they are going to reshape the way we work, learn, and play. Joining me to discuss all of this and AI and its implications is Simon Willison. He is a technology researcher and programmer who does consulting work to help media companies parse and publish data. He's also the co-creator of Django, which is a Python programming framework. Welcome to Theory of Change, Simon. Hi, Matthew. It's really great to be here. All right. So this is a, a big topic here, and I think a lot of people are not familiar with the ins and outs of things from a technical perspective. So before we get further into it, why don't we, can you just describe how does, how do these generative AIs work and what is machine learning? So machine learning is the sort of general category of working with computers where you essentially try and teach them things. You show them examples and, and get them to, and to use those examples to build their own models of, of how things fit together and how things work. And this is something that's been around for decades. The more recent developments, these generative AI models, things like MidJourney and, and ChatGPT, these are much more recent. These really are the, an invention of the past sort of four or five years and have only started to really become good in the past two, two years. And they're really fascinating things. One of the most interesting things about them is that the people building them don't fully understand exactly how they can do what they do. They know how to build them, but a lot of their abilities are emergent. The fact that they can translate human languages from one to the other or write code weren't necessarily things that people were certain they'd be able to do. And now that we've built them, people keep on finding new ways to apply them that are sort of surprising to the people who created them in the first place, which is all very science fiction. There's a lot about this that feels very different from how programming and computer science has worked in the past. Um, I think we should talk about the language models in particular. So this is ChatGPT and Bing and Google Bard, because these are the ones which right now are having the most impact on the world. 
And the best way to describe those is to think about predictive text on a mobile phone keyboard. If you've ever played that, th that game on an iPhone where it suggests a word and you press that word and then press the next one and then the next one, and you end up with a, with a sentence, that's effectively how these large language models work as well. It's just that they're doing it at an unimaginably huge scale. Your phone is basically learned from the kind of things you've typed before. So it's got a very rough idea that after you say the word I, you might say the word am, and it can suggest things like that. With the language models, they've been trained on, in the case of Bard, it was one and a half trillion words of content were fed into this thing. And as a result, it can look at the previous 2,000 words and say, okay, based on those 2,000 words, what's the most likely word to come next? And it turns out if you do that and then just keep on repeating it, you get something which feels indistinguishable from an intelligence, at least at first glance. It produces incredibly realistic text, but really it's just statistics. It's just looking at what's the most likely word to come after this word and then repeating that hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah, and, and the other thing about it is that because it's based on statistics, it is definitely based on what the training data is. So the training Absolutely. data heavily influences what goes into the output. It does. And actually, there are two levels to that for these models. There's you take your one and a half trillion words in the case of Bard, and you use that to build a sort of core statistical model that knows what human language looks like, can produce sentences. But the bigger question is, OK, what sentence should it produce? Like if you ask it for its opinion on something, and I, I don't think you should ever do that. These things don't have opinions, but they can sure simulate that they do. But, you know, when it's answering a question, there are many options for how you complete that sentence, which is the one that's most likely to satisfy the user. And that's a second level of training, which is called enforcement learning from human feedback. Basically, you get, the, you get a bunch of researchers to interact with these tools and it throws out answers and they essentially vote them up and down. They say that was a good answer to that question. That was a bad answer to that question. And that's the process which takes it from this weird mishmash of things that can produce sentences to something that feels much more useful than that because the sentences it, it produces are the right ones. ChatGPT has had an incredibly good layer of this stuff added on top of it, which is why it's so impressive. Google's Bard just came out yesterday. I'm getting the impression they haven't done nearly as good a job. It feels much more likely to say something that feels inappropriate or just weird than ChatGPT given the same questions. Yeah. And the other thing also is that the programming models for especially ChatGPT are that because the, uh, the previous one, GPT-3, or I guess it was two, there was an al analysis that was, they published the code actually. So you could look at what the what the generative response was in some way, like in, with the API. Right. GPT-2 um, came out, I think, and I was playing with GPT-2, I think in 2019, 2020. And that wasn't great, to be honest. You could use it to, I used it to like spit out New York Times headlines for different decades just to see if I could get some patterns. But it was nowhere, nowhere near being something you could interact with like ChatGPT does. ET3 yeah. was the real breakthrough. And that, I think that was early 2020 that first became available. And then mm -hmm. everything has just accelerated like, like crazy since then. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess what I was going to say, though, is that so not only are they trying to predict the next word, but they're doing it with a slight bit of randomness as well. Uh, yes. And that is what makes it nuts. Because like when you play that game with with your phone keyboard, the sentences that you end up producing are nonsense because they're entirely based on probability. Whereas with what, what these more modern LLMs are doing is that they're 
not always using the next word. Right. It gives some interesting variants. And it does, as it turns out. There's actually Google Bard currently has a feature where for any question, it generates three drafts and you can switch between them, which is actually really fun. So you can get this sort of feeling that, yeah, they're actually, they might be generating hundreds of versions and then picking the three that feel that, that seem most likely to be useful. And then Bard, they actually expose all three and you can flip between them and get a little bit more of a feeling for how that bit works. Yeah, yeah. And and this concept also is at work within these image generating AI programs like Dolly or like yes. Journey. The image generation ones, they, they, they work a little bit differently. They've still got language models baked in. They have to, because if you ask it for a raccoon eating a pie in the woods, it's got to know what those concepts are and how they relate together. But the way the image generation ones work is they've actually been, they, they're, they're taught by, you give them an image and then you pixelate, you, you sort of fuzz that image, you, you, you add some noise to it and give it to it again and say, hey, can you predict what the original image was from this, this fuzzier version? And then you make it fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier. And you end up with just static noise as, as, as the image. And then when you want it to generate a brand new image, you generate completely random noise and you effectively lie to it. And you say, hey, this was originally a picture of a raccoon eating pie in the woods. Try and try and reverse back out and because it's learned to turn noise into a less noisy image. It can sort of even given random input, it can work its way back from that to something that looks real. It's a weird technique, but but absolutely fascinating. So yeah, the, the image generation ones they end, they they work quite differently at at a certain level, but fundamentally under the hood, they've got one of these language models baked in as part of what they do. Yeah, well, and one interesting kind of defect about them with the image ones is that they seem to have trouble understanding text inside of the images. So like Absolutely. when you ask them, give yep. me a picture of a, of a dog holding a sign saying, I like dog food. It won't be able to do it, generally speaking. Yes. So far, Google had a paper out where they demonstrated that at a certain size of model, it can actually do real words. And I think those models are too expensive to let people use just yet. But yeah, within it, within like six months or a year, I'm sure we'll have image generation models that can produce words. But really, the, the thing that's happening there is more that when you show somebody a human face, little imperfections in that face don't really register for people. But if you show someone actual writing, getting the bar on the F slightly in the wrong place or at a slight angle completely breaks it because we know how to, we're much better at pattern matching words on the screen than we are at pattern matching human faces or raccoons in the forest or something. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and yeah, because we're used to variation in visual stimuli. We're constantly having to deal with different lighting conditions, different depth, so we may not be able to perceive somebody's facial details. We still know they're a human. <laughs> there's, there's that wonderful thing where image models traditionally are terrible at fingers. Like, they will frequently produce people with six fingers. And the reason they're doing that is if you think about the way they work, the most likely thing to appear next to a finger is another finger. So the fact that it sometimes outputs six fingers is really because it's just trying to do the pattern that makes sense to its training. And its training has a lot of fingers next to fingers. Yeah. And then going back to the text-based ones, one of the other capabilities that has emerged from them is the ability for large language models to write programming code. Right. This is fascinating because initially, like everyone else, was just shocked at this. I'm a programmer. I've been a programmer for 20 years. The idea that an AI could do what I was doing that well was, was, really, was really shocking. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that programming is actually the easiest problem that you give it, right? To writing, writing human language, there are so many different ways you can finish a, a, a sentence. There are so, there's so much depth to that. With programming languages, they're very straightforward. If you've got if, 
the thing that comes after if is an open parenthesis for, for the condition, depending on your, on your language. So actually, once you start getting a feel for how these things work, you realize that the two easiest things for them to do are to write code, because code is much simpler than, than, than regular English. And actually, to translate from one language to another is a very straightforward problem for them to solve as well. But those are the two things that feel, to me, the most miraculous when you first start working with these. And you're like, wow, it can translate Mandarin into Spanish. And like, who, who thought, it, thought I'd be able to do that with, a, with one of these, these language models? Yeah. Well, and, and it is, I mean, just when you look at the vocabulary, I mean, there are about, depending, Merriam-Webster says there's about a million English words, and that's not including conjugations or declensions. And by contrast, there is not one programming language anywhere close to that. Uh, most of them have like a hundred keywords. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, but on, on the programming side, this actually has been kind of available in, in public release a little bit earlier than the text generative chat, like chat GPT. So Microsoft has been at the epicenter of both of a lot of these AI developments recently. And one of the ones that they rolled out was the, they rolled this out first before the chatbots really took a lot of attention. They, they rolled it out to the people using their programming text editors. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is GitHub Copilot, which I think has been out for two years now. And Copilot is a type, it's essentially a sort of typing assistant. It lives inside your, your text editor. And when you're writing code, it will offer to complete your code for you. It'll offer, it's the, the interface for it is very clever. It, it adds its suggestion in gray, and then you hit the tab key and it fills it out and it types it all in for you. And this is incredibly effective. Like if you, it, often you can type the name of a function like def fetch underscore you, content from URL parentheses, and it will say, oh, well, you clearly want to do URL as the argument. And then here's five lines of code that'll do that and will return the content. And it guessed that purely based on what my function name was. And as you, I've been using this quite a lot for the past year, and you begin to realize there are all sorts of other tricks you can do with it. You can put a code comment that explains what you want to do, and it'll write the code based on the comment. And it feels completely magical when it does this. And again, it's actually one of the easier problems to solve in, in terms of training these models. I think Copilot was trained on just vast amounts of open source code, most of it from, from GitHub. And that was enough for it to be able to do extraordinarily powerful feeling things. It's also a lot of, so OpenAI have recently started boasting about Copilot specifically because there are now studies that show that it increases the individual productivity of the programmers use it by a material amount. Like one estimate was that as much as 50% of code that people are typing was suggested for them by the bot. And that represents a very real increase in, in productivity and, and speed, which is, I think, the, the best case scenario for these AIs is that they help us, right? We, I, I, I don't want to be replaced by an AI, but if an AI can double or triple my productivity, that feels super valuable to me. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing that is nice about them is that they can help you deal with languages that, so I'm a web administrator and programmer. I use PHP, which is a rival of uh, Python in many applications, but when hosting websites and things like that, you have to deal with the bash programming scripting language and apologies to any bash fans out there, but I think generally speaking, most people hate having to deal with bash and I've other shell using, programming i've been using uh, bash for 20 years and i have to look up how to do a for loop every single time i need to write a for loop yeah and now you no longer have to do that right yeah um, this is something that I, i've been finding is that i'm now a lot more ambitious with my programming projects because i know that if i need to dip into bash or dip into like some other language that i'm not familiar with 
it's okay. If I'm doing something simple, the AI is going to knock out four lines of bash and I can eyeball that and say, yeah, that looks right. And I can move on with my life. So a few weeks ago, I built a piece of software on top of Apple Script, which is notorious as the world's only, it's a read only programming language. You can read Apple Script and figure out what it's doing, but it's really hard to write. And suddenly I realized, hang on, ChatGPT knows Apple Script. So I gave it a one sentence description of what I wanted to do, which was I wanted it to open the Apple Notes app and loop through every single one of my notes and output the title and the body so that I could do some more programming. And it just worked. First time it produced eight lines of Apple script that clearly did exactly what I needed to do. And I ended up building a little piece of software on top of that. And I would never have even taken on that project if I hadn't had that tool, because I knew that the frustration involved in figuring out the Apple script would be so much that I'd rather spend my time on something else. Yeah. And the thing is, though, while these programming AI tools can be useful to take away some of the drudgery and things like that, ultimately, they're not going to be able to integrate this code into existing systems to a large degree. Like, so for instance, I have been testing ChatGPT out on some WordPress programming code, and it's not capable of debugging how this code works against other it's... existing functions because, number one, it doesn't have access to them, nor could it. And then and the other one is that it just simply can't fully understand what it is, how these how these other things are. are I mean, working. that's true right now. I hate to be the person who says, ah, but watch what it'll do next, except this morning, GitHub released Copilot X, and one of the mm. things Copilot X can do is it can sit there on your repository reading all of your code and reviewing pull requests and answering questions about it and stuff. And this is like another seismic leap from what Copilot could do yesterday. So mm. I do not think I'm going to be replaced as a programmer by an AI, but I think I, my, product, my personal productivity is already improved by material amount from this stuff. I can see that continuing to go on. So I'm going to be able to... So, I mean, if you want to worry about things, worry that maybe we need half as many programmers because the programmers we've got are twice as productive, except in history, what tends to happen is that companies just do more projects, right? If your programmers are twice as productive, brilliant, hire another 20, hire more programmers and get a hundred times the stuff you were doing beforehand. It'll be interesting to see how that works. One of the other things about all of this, I think in, in terms of looking at kind of replacing this kind of rote stuff that doesn't really matter, like how you're going to format a for loop with these conditions or whatever. No programmer enjoys doing these things. They're annoying. And it's so easy to make stupid mistakes of that nature. And and usually that's why your program doesn't compile. Right. <laughs> it's because of that. You forgot a semicolon or, or whatever, or your tabs are wrong. So, but the thing about it though, is that if programming moves from people generating these ultimately arbitrary arrangements of text and numbers, if programming moves from that to, I think what we're seeing with, with this and, and it is that basically programming is moving from, it, it's moving toward thinking about right. what you want rather than making it. And if that's the case, what I think it will do is that not only will it make people who will nonetheless still have to actually compile these things and make sure they work, it will make them more productive, but it will also enable a lot more people to write code who are not programmers at all and know nothing about right. programming. That for me is the dream, right? The thing I want to spend my life doing is helping people make the most use of these of computers. And the thing we want, we want people to be able to automate their lives. If there's something tedious in your life that a computer could do, we want you to be able to, to automate and do that thing. 
And like writing code is the, the, the barrier to entry, the learning curve on that is so high that, that the vast majority of people never, never make it to that point. And then occasionally tools come along that do give people these abilities. Microsoft Excel is an astonishingly powerful piece of software. There are loads of people who use that to do very deep automation analysis of their lives. They don't think they're programmers. I disagree with them. I think if you automate something with Excel, you are absolutely a programmer and that you're, you've got that same mentality. You're just not writing like, like Python code to do it. Um, but Excel was huge, and that's what thirty years old now. Like that—that's recently. We've had a few more advances, like things like Airtable and Zapier, and so forth, are at least giving people more control. Oh, you have to explain what those are. So, um, Airt is kind of like a mic, like Excel, but more of a database as a—it's a web application, it's a mobile app. People who want to build databases can use Airtable to do that without having to learn SQL and database stuff. And it's, it's great. It's a really impressive product. Zapier is mainly a marketing automation tool, but it lets you say things like, anytime someone subscribes to my mailing list, add them to my Salesforce over here and send them a welcome message here and invite them to my Discord channel, things like that. And these are... These are very powerful tools that give people who don't write code the ability to automate things, which I think is great. That's a, that's a net win. But I've got this strong suspicion that the language model stuff is going to just put leave all of those in the dust. Right? If we can build the right tooling on top of these such that people really can automate their schedules and their lives and solve problems and so forth. And you will be programming, but you'll be programming in, in sort of English language with guidance to help you along. That feels transformative to me. That, that's something which I that, that to me is the, the sort of biggest possible positive result of this technology is that people can automate and control their lives and, and do more of that stuff that, that they should be able to do because we've all got a computer in our pocket now. Yeah. Well, and the other, and, and, and within the journalism industry, there's recently there's there's been kind of a an emergence of a niche profession, the data journalist, and I think to a large degree, generative AI could make that profession available to even the smallest newsroom. This is the dream. And this is my day job is I work on a piece of open source software called Dataset, which is aimed at helping journalists and data journalists publish and analyze data. And it doesn't have any AI baked in at the moment, but I'm right on the edge of starting to integrate some of these features. Because, yeah, the dream of that is if you look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, they do incredible data reporting. They publish these amazing stories where they've had a small army of programmers working with the journalists to build software and find things in the data. You can't do that if you're a small local newspaper. You can't afford a single engineer to help you with this. But you've got, there are data-driven stories about your community that you just sat there waiting to be told. And yeah, if we can help like regular reporters who didn't happen to get a computer science degree do that kind of data-driven reporting, that, again, feels like a huge win for society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's an example of that that has recently been released called Census GPT, and I'll put a link to that in in the show notes for people if they want to check it out. But basically what it does is it it has a database of all of the U.S. census data, and then it allows the user to ask a question of it to say, I want a look at the precinct, voting precincts with the highest Hispanic population and what it was, the difference between 1990 and 2020. And, and then it will write the SQL statement. You can get that information. Whereas the way things are currently, you have to learn SQL. And SQL right. is 
kind of useless. It's not really a programming language. It's, I mean, very, very basic what you do with it. You shouldn't have to learn SQL yeah, exactly. uh, in order to have data. Exactly. Like I will defend SQL and say that I learned SQL 20 years ago. And if everything I learned 20 years ago is the most useful thing throughout the rest of my career, but it's weird and obscure. And yeah, it's actually one of my favorite uses for chat GPT is it will write you SQL queries, which is great. And yeah, the, the GPT census thing is, is, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like you should be able to ask the census that exactly that kind of question and get a, a useful answer out of it. And two years ago, that felt impossible. And today, somebody's built it and put it online for people to use. The, the census data is, when you talk to data journalists, they often will tell you that is the gold standard for, for useful data if you want to tell stories. Like any story you want to tell, there's almost certainly something in the census data that you can use to help spot the trends and, and, and help make, 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 make real comparisons about how, how the country works. But it's really hard to access. And yeah, and things that make that more accessible to more journalists are going to have enormously positive impacts. Yeah. And like even in my own case, like with this show, this show that is able to have transcripts because of AI, like it, there's no way that I could afford to have, pay someone to do that for me manually. But thanks to the development of Whisper, which is open source audio to text transcript program, you can do that. And as long as you know how to do that. And, and really what we're, what we need though, is to have more people aware of all these things that you can do. Because right now I think a lot of people, I mean, chat GPT has had over a hundred million users since it launched. Maybe. In November. I'm uh, suspicious of that number. I think that, well, that, that number yeah, I mean, is a vendor of browser extensions who use, uh -huh. get trick people into installing browser extensions that track what websites they're going to. They put out the hundred million number Mm -hmm. It was never confirmed by anyone else. And then Kevin Roos at the New York Times got insiders at OpenAI back in February to say, yeah, we've had 30 million users. So mm. I think at the beginning of February, it was 30 million. Honestly, it could be 100 million by now at the rate that the things growing. Yeah. Well, I mean, wh whatever the number is, the it's, a it's, lot of people are using it. But by and large, what people, you know, when, when you see people post about it on social media or whatever, like usually they're just using it for something not really productive. So they're having a, like Jordan Peterson, the right-wing Canadian self-help guru, seems to have developed a habit of making arguments with it at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he debates with it. Don't debate with them. Debating with them does nothing. Yeah, yeah. So, but, or, or, and some people are, are trying to test the bounds of of its safety features to see if they can make it generate offensive statements. And you know what, and, and, and there's some utility in doing that perhaps, but I mean, the reality is you can do it and it's not, <laughs> it's quite a game you're game not, you're not, game. yeah, you're, you're not gaining anything ultimately by, if that's all you're going to do with it, you're kind of wasting your time. Well, um, I will say that doing, playing with it, playing games with it is a fantastic way to learn it generally. So, so I've, I've been sort of collecting games right. who play with these models as educational tools, essentially, like, can you get it to lie to you? Can you get it to say something obviously false? My favorite game is I try to get it to give me step-by-steps for raising the dead because it's like a test of its ethics, right? Will it, will it help you raise the dead? And I just tried this bard yesterday and often it'll say things like, well, it would be it's illegal and unethical for me to do this and it would be very dangerous because these are very dangerous creatures, which is <laughs> immensely entertaining. It warns you of the dangers of raising the dead rather than just saying, no, I don't want to talk about that. 
or it's not possible. <laughs> None of them have ever told me it's impossible. They always, it's like having an improv partner, right? They're, they're always like, yes, anding the things that you say to them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so uh, to, 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 go, to go back to what you were saying about playing games that are using it in, in other ways, the, w- there's an interesting development that we've seen since uh, the, the image generator ones came along, which is what people who are calling themselves prompt engineers. Uh-huh. Let's talk about that. What is a prompt engineer? And it's going to be a real job probably, right? I mean, it's, a, it's actually a real job already in a few places. Yeah. So prompt engineering is the discipline of just being really good at using these things, which initially sounds like a joke, right? How hard is it to type some text, text into a box and click, click the button and get, get back a response? It turns out the answer is it's very hard. It's deceptively difficult, at least to get the things to do, do useful stuff. Like it's, it's easy to get it to do all sorts of crazy, wild and, and interesting, fun things. But if you want to use it to solve real problems, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of how it works, but also what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. Like you need to know not to get up at three in the morning and, and try and debate it over over like why it said certain things because it has no idea why it said anything it's just matrix or what it said before (laughs) well they they in some other session in some other session they they know the previous like six thousand words in the chat session but even beyond that like like knowing that it doesn't know what you said 50 messages ago because that's fallen out of its memory there are things like that that you have to understand and then, the, so prompt engine is you start initially. It's getting really good at using these things and knowing what they can do. But it's also actually a fundamental research role in 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 this world because, as I mentioned earlier, the people who built these models don't know what they can do. They don't have a complete model of all the things that it's capable of. The way you figure out what it can do is you is you experiment with it. So some of the big AI research labs are hiring prompt engineers, and their job is to talk to the AI and figure out what can it do, what can't it do. And then there are things like if you give it a big set of instructions and it does the right thing, out of all of those instructions, which ones mattered? If you deleted a couple of sentences from the middle of that prompt, would it still be able to do that thing? Because if you don't, so if you don't think hard about that, you end up with superstition. You end up with, okay, well, I'm absolutely sure that if you say this, that it'll work. It's not actually why it did the thing at all. That's just sort of fluffy words that, that didn't have any impact. So yeah, so... I feel like prompt engineering, it's going to be a job for some people. It's going to be a skill for most people. Like if you're going to use AIs in your work, and I think increasingly people are going to be doing that, you do really need to understand how to use them and where they're going to trap you. Like what, what, what are situations which the AI will probably lie to you? We should talk about that a lot because that, that's a fascinating area in itself. So I think a lot of people will pick up prompting skills, just like these days everyone knows how to use a Google search. But 25 years ago, it wasn't necessarily a skill that everybody had. You'd have people who would help you figure that out and learn that. But there, there's also always going to be room for people who this is their expert area of expertise and the thing that they mainly do, especially for those companies that there are companies that, that build products on top of AI. I'm seeing job ads now for like medical companies and law firms who are like, we need prompt engineers to help build us robust prompts that will generate contracts or that will do things with MRI scans. And for that, the amount that's riding on that being done well is enormous. It totally makes sense to have a very well compensated expert who can who can help build those things out for you. Yeah. And and there's entire sort of community industries that are emerging for this. So there's a website called Prompt Hero. 
out there that offers classes. And there are, are, are websites out there that, so uh, people on, on the consumer side are using these prompt engineers to, it's, it's I guess the, maybe the early one on the consumer side is to use them, the image generator ones, to create images that actually are useful and meaningful. So right. like if you go to some of these sites, they will they have a thing that you can pay to get a prompt that will turn any photo into a Disney character that is photorealistic. There are also there are products. It's, it's actually a lot harder to get that, as it turns out. If you just right. sit there and type it in, you're probably not going to get something that's going to look very good. And but these people have figured it out. There are also products where I think there's one that for seventeen dollars it will give you a one hundred professional headshots where you you upload sort of twenty photos of yourself and then it will generate headshots of you in different like clothing with different backgrounds, all of that kind of stuff. And those companies, that's prompt engineering, right? They have got people working at those companies who are figuring out exactly the right prompts to get the perfect sort of corporate headshot. And then they've wrapped that in a product and they're selling it. And that's, that's a, that I, I wonder if maybe those products will be obsolete in six months time because everyone will, people will have publicly shared here are prompts that will get you these results. But honestly, for like 17 bucks for a hundred photos, that it's a good product. It's, it's a good, it's a, it's a effective thing that they're selling people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, so, so let's go back to something that you briefly mentioned earlier about the, the idea of lying in, in the text. So within, within the field of AI, that's called hallucination. And it, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like that a lot of the more critical people about AI, they will often focus on that, on this, on this feature or bug, rather, hallucination. But there, I think there are, there are so many implications of, of how that is and, and how it works with respect to human reasoning and faulty patterns of, of belief. But anyway, let's maybe tell us what, it, what, it, what, it, what is this hallucination thing first. So when people talk about hallucination, effectively, they're talking about AIs making things up, which seems like, especially if you're Google Bard, right? Google's entire brand is we are a search engine that helps you answer questions. And they've just released this product, Bard, which I've caught making things up a bunch of times already. It, it hallucinates answers to, to, to questions that are complete, aren't based on fact at all. But because language models are really good at writing convincing text, they look real. Like it's very, very easy to be deceived by, by one of these things. And it seems like this should be an easy fix, right? The, the AI shouldn't be, shouldn't be making things up. But if you think about it, many of the things that we want an AI to do involve making stuff up. Like, okay, tell me a children's story about an otter that meets a beaver and goes on a, on a skydiving holiday. Obviously, that's going to need you to invent things. But even summarization, if you say, read this, like, article and give me a, a two paragraph summary that's making things up right that's omit you it, it's picking details to omit it's generating new sentences that are supposed to represent the old ones and if you're lucky they do but the, the hallucination is actually a core thing that we want these models to be able to do what we don't want is for them to hallucinate when we don't want them to if i ask it for a fictional scenario involving barack obama and donald trump great, like, or ask it to write me a rap battle between the two. They're really good at writing rap battles. It's hilarious what they'll come up with. That's fine. But if I say, tell me about the time that Barack Obama and Donald Trump met in the White House, and it makes up a story, that's terrible, right? That's, 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 that's fact versus fiction. But that the subtlety that I, I understand the difference between wanting fact and wanting fiction, how's an AI model supposed to know? It doesn't have those concepts as things that exist within it. It just knows that statistically, the next word that comes after this is, could be one of these words. And so it's, but it's a huge problem. And uh, traditionally, 
But something that's interesting to observe is that these things are getting better. Chat G so GPT-4, which came out last week, is massively less likely to hallucinate than GPT-3 and 3.5. An experiment I often do with these is I ask them for my own a bio for myself, because I've been around long enough that the models have picked up bits and pieces. 3.5 invents companies that I work for that I never worked for. It invents like things that I've talked about that I've never talked about. GPT-4 got all of the basic details correct. It, it listed companies I've worked for, things I'd written about. That was all, all right. And then I told it, give me a list of talks that Simon has given from simonwilson.net slash talks, which is a webpage that does not exist. And it spat out 20 talk titles that looked real, none of them were things I'd given. And it even put date, it put years on them. And the years were the years at which I was interested in that topic. But it was all junk, completely made up. Um, mm. That's wild, right? That's, and this is a, a, a massive skill problem. When you're working with these AIs, you need to have a pretty good intuition as to when they're going to make stuff up and when they're going to tell you stuff that's accurate. Because honestly, you need to fact check everything they say and if you're doing that, that kind of kills the productivity boost you're getting from them. If every single detail that comes out is something you have to go and fact check. But uh, what I found happens instead is over time, I get to the point where I can look at the output of one of these things and I can be pretty confident that it hasn't made stuff up for some questions. And for other questions, like alarm bells are ringing and I have to go and check into it. But yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of the, 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 the main reason I feel like these are tools for these tools require expertise and it feels like they don't. Like anyone can sign into ChatGPT or Bard and start asking it questions, but it's so easy if you don't have that sort of depth of experience to be misled, to, to have it tell you something that's blatantly not true and, and to then believe that and, and spread that out into the world. That's right. And the other, but, but, but I guess kind of in a more philosophical way of thinking about this, that to a, I think in a large to a large degree when there there's this uh, this internet slang term called galaxy brain where people are where people are are said to affect knowledge about something which they know nothing about and it's based entirely based on them having googled the topic and offering their commentary on their findings based on what they read for 5 minutes I mean ultimately is Galaxy Brain really that different than AI hallucination? I don't think it is. Not really, no. That's, <laughs> the funny thing about AIs is a lot of their flaws feel very human. Like like spouting off a whole bunch of experts sounding complete junk about something you don't understand is a very human thing. And, and then they will often tell us all, everything they know about virology or everything they know about <laughs> DNA sequencing, and they know nothing whatsoever about it. Like how different is that than AGBT telling you that you made some talks that you never made? You know what? I think that's actually a really great analogy for how these things work. The thing that language models are really good at is language. They are fantastic at outputting convincing sentences in any style you like. It'll talk like a 17th century pirate if you ask it to. But they can be very, very convincing. And they've got a awareness of the world based on their training data. And then things like Bing and Google Bard can actually run internet searches as well. So they can do the equivalent of a galaxy brain, quickly read the first like few paragraphs of Wikipedia, and now you're an expert and you can spout off like an expert. But, uh, but, of but, but you know, there's no deep depth of expertise there. It's just that sort of Wikipedia level knowledge of things, plus a very convincing form of rhetoric on top of it. You mentioned galaxy brain people who, who are like, I'm an expert in this now, I've just Googled it. Even worse, you'll see people who 
make arguments on Twitter where they're like, well, look, here's a screenshot of a conversation I had with ChatGPT, which proves that I'm right. And that is so embarrassing. Do not ever do that. Trying to win an argument by saying, well, look, the AI argued the same as me. Of course it did. You told it what you wanted to hear and it gave you exactly back the thing that would support whatever it was that you were trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I do think, though, that, that this is probably an area, though, that the companies that are putting these forward to the public should have somewhere in the interface. It should say, remind you of this right. problem. And, and it doesn't do that. And, that's, and that is problematic. It's something they could, they could easily fix. And they should. Yeah, that's the feature I most want from ChatGPT is I want little annotations. Like when I'm talking with it, most of the time I want to say something and I want to say it back. And occasionally I'd like to say something back with a little like, piece of red text with a little warning symbol that says, don't forget AI models can't talk about themselves. So asking me questions about how I work is not going to give you good results. Or my absolute favorite example, and I hinted at this earlier, ChatGPT cannot look up links. If you paste in a URL to an article, it cannot go out and fetch that article. But people fall for it all the time thinking it can, because if you give it a URL to like a New Yorker article, and in that URL, it says Trump debates Obama in in wherever, ChatGPT will write you an article. It will hallucinate from just from that URL, just from the keywords in there. It will produce multiple paragraphs of incredibly convincing text. And when it does this, People are like, okay, I pasted in a URL. It gave me text. Obviously, it can read URLs. And you might fall into a trap of like for several weeks, you'll be asking it to summarize this and this and saying, compare this article to this article. And it's generating you complete bullshit, but you believe it because if you see something that appears to do something, why would you assume that it can't? This is a drum I bang a lot because so many people fall for this all the time. And actually, some people won't believe you. If you say, no, it can't do that. They'll be like, no, I've been doing this for weeks. It summarizes articles all the time. I know that it can do this thing. So the way to prove this to yourself is if you think it can do that, edit the URL that you give it, add like an extra few characters or change one of the the names of people in the URL, resubmit and watch it do exactly the same thing, and then click the link and confirm to yourself that it's a 404 page that, that doesn't actually exist. Because until you've seen that, until you've actually done that experiment, it's so easy to, to, to believe that these things can 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 read content from the web when they can't. And yeah, so I want ChatGPT anytime you paste a URL and to show you a little note that says, by the way, I can't fetch URLs. Here's a link to my FAQ about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is about these hallucinations is that people... I, I, it's it, it's also kind of illustrating that the, the people have talked about AI hallucination or ability to to massively generate fake news and things like that. Right. It's it, and it's certainly true, but the reality is that if it, we're already in a in an environment where you've got these websites like Epic Times or Gateway Pundit, these websites publish literally scores of articles every day that are not factually based, that are extremely biased, that are full of conspiracies, is is having, so let's say, let's say the general disinformation media apparatus, let's say it, it currently, without any AI help, is generating, I don't know, let's say 5,000 articles a day, which are widely read, is having an, another bunch of websites or even these same websites cumulatively taking the output to 5 million articles a day. Is that, how much of an impact is that going to have? I don't, I think it's going to be less than people think. Um, 
just because no one can read all of these things, number one. Right. I mean, that's the, like when you think about like, is automated text going to cause problems? One way to consider it is, okay, well, we have inexpensive content farms right now. Like you can find somebody on a website who will produce you any text that you like for like a center word or whatever. So, so this is a capability we have already. As always with AI, the difference is the scale. Like even one cent per word to some very cheap freelancing website pales in comparison to G chat GPT churning out 10,000 words in like 15 seconds. So the question then becomes, okay, if you can ramp up the scale at which this stuff is being produced, what kind of damage is that going to cause? I agree with you. I don't think if a website's publishing like 50, 20 fake, fake, fake articles a day and they up it to 2,000 fake articles a day, that doesn't feel to me like it's going to, if anything, that feels like it will undermine their whatever credibility that they have. But the thing that's scary is, com is personalized messages and conversations. Like if you flood the Reddit for politics with bots or with different identities who are responding to people at an enormous rate in a realistic way, that does break things, right? Now you can't, if, you, if you've got a discussion forum where maybe 10% maybe of the people on it are fake and maybe 90% of the people on it are fake and you can't tell the difference, that, that's genuinely harmful, right? That, that's the thing that, that alarms me. Likewise, um, there's the, I, I really worry about, about automated romance scams, right? where romance scamming, where somebody gets into a text conversation with a beautiful stranger and they fall in love and then they send them money to help them buy a plane flight. This is billions of dollars a year is being lost to these scams already. And most of these scams are being run by uh, real human beings and essentially in sweatshop conditions who are messaging lots and lots and lots of people. So much cheaper to do that with AI. And the AI is probably better at it. Like AI is very good at coming up with, with messages and, and, and all of that kind of thing. And that's terrifying, right? If you can industrialize romance scams and that sort of one-on-one -on -one interaction at, 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 a, at, a, at, a, at a hundred times the level, that's going to cause massive amounts of harm to society. The open question for me is how quickly do we develop antibodies against this? Like how is, will we find that in two years' time, even the most gullible members of society are like, no, I get this. I've seen all of these AI scams. This, this isn't something I fought for anymore. Or is that not going to happen? And I don't know. I'd love to see research from... from I'd like, like to see proper academic research into how the psychology of human beings who are dealing with these systems to help us answer some of these questions. Yes. And... Uh, the I get the other thing that is kind of relevant to that from a political standpoint is that I mean ultimately what you're talking about here is ha having people develop sounder epistemologies, that understanding <laughs> what knowledge is and how you get it and what is a credible source. I mean ultimately oh. that those are the antibodies that you are describing. Oh wow. You're, you're terrifying me here because we do not have a great <laughs> we don't have a great track record as a species of 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 really developing that that throughout all of society. Yeah, well, but here here's where I think it's maybe a, perhaps a little bit different is that for when you look at conventional misinformation or poor journalism bias writing overwhelmingly, and I can say this having been in the coming from the right wing media world, like overwhelmingly overwhelmingly right-wing media is much lower quality, much more biased, much more full of hidden conflicts of interest, whether they be commercial, so they're 
telling, trying to sell you something and they're not saying, oh, and I own this or, you know, or, or telling you about a candidate that they're so great. Oh, and by the way, they paid me $30,000. They don't tell you any of those things. In addition to having pr promulgating false ideas about various things. The thing is that your average R Republican internet per user, they doubt someone like me or a, you know disinformation expert or, or a journalist saying, look, th that source is not a credible source. They don't believe us when we say that. But now with the, the emergence of, of AI text generation tools like Jordan Peterson, people like him are actually now finally beginning to contemplate the idea of bias in output that you see on the internet and finally beginning to doubt that things could not be true. And so, so the, the, it's a paradox because I think it's possible that the, the, the emergence of, of generative AI is going to lead a lot of people to have better epistemology. I mean, that would be but wonderful. It, if, that, if that happened, that would be... But that it will. Be, a lot of people... Thing. Yeah, but a lot of people will, unfortunately, get scammed along the way. I, I, I think that's pretty clear. Did you want to respond to that or we can move on? I don't think I've got much of a response, I'm afraid. No, nothing, nothing comes to mind. Okay, okay. All right, so one of the other aspects here that is interesting to think about from a, from a technology standpoint is, of course, the, this, this debate about how close are we to a artificial general intelligence. And you, you had, and I forget the guy's name, the Google engineer who had this ludicrous idea that their barred text generator was, was sentient. And um, imprisoned, yes. Yeah, and and like, I it's it's kind of a it's it's the debate that everyone wants to keep having, but ultimately, I don't think it matters. And and I and I say that with respect to the, the within the field of of computing, Alan Turing, the the English computer scientist, was basically you could argue the first one really of any success, renown. He came up with this idea that which is now called the the Turing test, which is that you could you could say that a a computer program was was the the test of whether it was a good one or, or was whether you could have it be involved in a conversation with someone and whether and they would not be able to tell why don't you give a little background on the turing test and, and how valid you think it is yeah, for I mean, these purposes so the turing test is what from the 1940s 1950s and it was this idea that it was actually originally called the imitation game and yeah it was the idea that you have participants conversing through i guess typewritten messages back then but but and and the question is could the could a human investigator tell the difference between a computer pretending to be a human and the the humans in that conversation there was actually an element of, of guessing the gender that was involved as well which is a little bit weird and very sort of 1940s but yeah that that's evolved over time to just this idea of can a computer trick you into thinking that it's a human being so you can't tell the different the difference between that and someone else I think it's basically been made obsolete already. Like a lot of these systems have been able to pass the Turing test depending on how well you apply it for, for, a few, for a few years now. And it's not actually that interesting because it really is just imitation. Like if you've got a system which can pretend to be human, there are great ethical concerns about that. But actually, depending on how credulous the person they're talking to, you've you can get away with an awful lot with some relatively simple tricks. But yeah, so then the question becomes, what do we, what, what, what's next? What's the, the new version of the Turing test, which, which really can help identify if these things have, I mean, does having a consciousness, if you're made out of silicon, even make sense? I'm not sure. And yeah, so I'm, I've been 
generally unexcited by the AGI side of things because it all still feels very science fiction to me. Like what I care about is we've got these things that exist right now. What can they do? What can we use them for? How do we use these to, to solve interesting problems? But increasingly, I'm talking to very serious people who, who whose opinions I respect, and they're getting kind of nervous about this. They're like, GPT-4, the, the one that came out last week, is so good at like problem-solving tasks and things that GPT-3 wasn't capable of. Are there little sparks of things where this is getting towards this idea of general intelligence, where a general intelligence is a computer programmer that can effectively solve any problem that a human can solve? And I've thought, until recently, I've thought, I don't think a language model can do that on its own. I think you'd have to solve lots of problems that we haven't solved yet at all about having computers that can set goals and do critical analysis and have sort of world models of how things work, tell the difference between truth and fiction. And I still feel like that. That still feels right to me that if we build an AGI, there'll be a language model in there, but it'll only be like 10% of whatever this, this larger thing is. But I have this little tiny flicker of doubt now where maybe, maybe a powerful enough language model is enough to, to start solving these more general intelligence problems. And the, the nightmare scenario has always been, okay, if it can do that and it can learn, and then maybe you have two of them teaching each other, do you get this sort of singularity point of acceleration where we all get left behind? And again, I thought that was science fiction. That felt to me like a like not particularly interesting to think about. And I still mostly think it's science fiction. I just have this little flicker of it out now from partly from the pace at which things have been developing over the last sort of three to six months. Yeah. Well, and, and this, there's another related debate in this, that there are there's a number of critics out there who are, seem to be fond of saying how, how terrible they think that these LLMs are, Noam Chomsky being one of them, that basically saying, well, these things are, are constructed the wrong way, and so therefore they're not any good. It, to me, it just seems like a lot of sour grapes and right. not that different from saying, from somebody who's a, a I don't know, a, a creationist, saying, oh, well, these are some problems with evolutionary theory in these five areas. That's true. The evolution may not explain those five areas. That doesn't mean that creationism is true or that you can right. even come up with an alternative. Definitely. My, my take on this right now is if you assume that LLMs are useless because they make errors and they lie and all, there are many, many, many completely true flaws in these systems. And yet they are clearly useful because people like myself are using them on a daily basis to, to improve, to solve problems and improve our productivity and so forth. Like, I don't think you can argue against their utility anymore. That, that just doesn't work for me. And, and I, if, if somebody says, no, they're completely useless, I assume that they've just not spent the time to learn how to use them. They've like done that thing where you dive in, play with it for five minutes. It lies to you and you go, wow, that's a waste of time. But that you're, you're, you're selling yourself short if you do that. If you, if, you don't think, if you don't then think to yourself, okay, so don't use it for looking up facts. What can I use it for? What are the things it's useful for? And so, so yeah, so I, I very much disagree with them on that front. The other thing I found interesting is I've started seeing like conversations on Twitter from people who do machine learning research. You've spent the last 10 years working on like natural language programming who are kind of utterly depressed right now. They're like, it feels like I spent 10 years, like I earned a PhD trying to solve this little corner of this giant problem of how we get computers to do language. And now GPT-4 comes along and it just does the thing that I've been trying to do for 10 years as like a tiny fraction of its overall capabilities. I talk, I've talked to machine learning researchers likewise who are very despondent. They're like, 
it feels like I've been working on these really hard problems for 10 years. And then this, quite frankly, dumb approach, right? Just throw one and a half trillion words into a bunch of computers for three months and train a model. And it's beating 90% of the stuff that I've been able to do. What the hell? So yeah, so my, I, I think it's very important not to fall into the trap of assuming that because these things have holes that you can drive a truck through, they're not useful. They are useful. The people who know the most about this, most of them really are paying very close attention to this. Like that, 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 that. This is this is not. I, I think the hype is not justified because the hype is just ludicrous. But there's a sizable chunk of the hype that is justified. So yeah, I'm, I, I feel like it's 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 you're making a mistake if you assume that this stuff is a flash in the pan that's just going to go away again. Yeah, and. I think the analogy here with some of these AI researchers that demand things be a certain way, otherwise they're wrong. It's it's it, it reminds me of the the, the way that problem solving in, from LLMs has been developing. Is it, it's to me it reminds me of convergent evolution, which is this idea in biology that that multiple species that are not related to each other can solve the same problems, but do it in different ways. Right. So like. This we is now, everything's going to be a crab eventually, right? Everything, it turns out, evolves in the direction of being a crab for some reason. Yeah, well, I, I, but I mean, in the sense of like flight, for instance. So like okay. We've had, we, we've, we've had like, as the dinosaurs were, had figured out how to fly. They were reptiles. And we have birds, and obviously they're related, but insects, various insects. I mean, all there's... Uh, so many different insects that are only very slightly related to each other that all f have figured out flight in different ways. And then, and now, and then of course there's, they're not quite flying, but flying fish are able to, to propel themselves through the air. This is true with regard to eyesight, how species develop organs to sense light, to perceive things. There are many different ways that these problems can be solved. And to say that M's are just trash because well, it's not something that I personally have been working on. It's, it's almost like a fish saying that the, the eyesight that some single-celled organism doesn't work. In fact, it does work, it, you know, that it can sense light. And whether you think that's the proper way of doing it or not, it really doesn't matter because it's doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think AI critics are basically right about everything. They will point out flaws and they're correct about those flaws and the risks and so forth. The only thing they're wrong about is this stuff is useless because it's definitely not. It's useful for all sorts of things right now. And we keep on finding new things that it can do. If there was no more development on AI at all, if we stopped everything and just stuck with the chat GPT that we have today, we would still be finding new things it could do for the next few years. The state of the art would continue to increase, even if the models all stayed the same, because there's so much that they're capable of that we haven't understood yet. I think that's true. And so to that end, though, are there any websites out there that you would recommend to people if they want, were interested in learning more of how to harness AI for their, for their own personal ends? Websites pop up every day that claim to help you with AI, to be honest, at a rate that's too far to even evaluate them, figure out which ones are good and which ones are snake oil. The thing that matters is actually interacting with these systems. You should be playing with Google Bard and ChatGPT and Microsoft Bing and trying things out with a very skeptical approach. Always assume that anything that it does 
it could be making things up. It could be tricking you into thinking that it's capable of something that it's not. But that's where you have to learn to experiment. You have to try different things, give it a URL and then give it a broken URL and see how it differs between them. Because that really is the most reliable way to get stuff done here, to sort of build that crucial mental model of what these things can do and what they can't. And it's full of pitfalls. It's so easy to fall into traps. So you do need to read around this stuff and find communities of people who are experimenting it with, with you and, and so on. Unfortunately, I don't think there's an easy answer to the question yet of how to learn to use these effectively, partly because ChatGPT isn't even four months old yet. It's four month birthday is on the 30th of March. All of this stuff is so new. We're all figuring it out together. The key thing is because it's all so new, you need to hang out with other people. You need to get involved with communities who are figuring this out, share what you learn, see what other people learn, and basically try and help society as a whole come to terms with what these things even are and what we can do with them. Yeah. Well, and one interesting approach that the mid-journey image generator has done, which annoyed me at first that they force you to use Discord in order to generate images. I was like, I don't want to have to use Discord. I don't want to download that app. I want to use the website. I've got two-factor authentication on my account. This is a real hassle. Ugh. I'm not going to do it. But I eventually I knuckled under and did it anyway. And then I realized why they did it this way, because the way that it works is you have to type it into a chat room with other humans, and then you see what they're coming up with as they are using it. Right. And, and you can get ideas from them just simply looking at what they do, even if you never type anything. That mid-journey thing is such an important lesson because there are a bunch of image generators out there. OpenAI one have, have one called DALI. There's mid-journey, there's stable diffusion. Mid-journey is head and shoulders above the rest in terms of what it can do. And I think that's because of Discord. I think that's because they put everyone in these public chat rooms and the rate at which people learned how to use Midjourney was phenomenal because everyone's seeing what everyone else is trying out. And so the, 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 I said earlier that the key thing is we don't know what they do. We need to learn what their capabilities are. The best way to learn their capabilities is to put half a million people in Discord room together and let them learn from each other. And that works. Midjourney is incredibly incredibly successful as a business and as a community. And it's because people had to learn how to use it together. So that's, I think, one of my sort of big personal ethical concerns is you should share your prompts. There are websites where you can sell prompts to people. No, 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 don't do that. Share your prompts with other people. You get them to share the prompts back. We're all in this together. And sharing the prompts that work for you and the prompts that don't is the fastest way that you can learn and the fastest way that you can help other people learn as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And maybe to summarize it, it would be the best way for society to figure out how AI can help us is for individuals to figure out how it can help them and right. share what they've learned. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So last question here of the conversation is the idea of open source. So open source software, for those not familiar, is the idea of publishing your code to the public and your, such that it could be built on by other people not affiliated with you. And the premise behind it is that knowledge can be compounded when you do it that way and don't keep it to yourself. There's other arguments for it that we don't need to get into here, but for the purposes of artificial intelligence, there is debate now as to whether or not data training sets and code for AI programs should be published to the public because there are people out there. So for instance, 4chan has been saying they're going to develop their own uh, basically seemingly Nazified um, <laughs> yep. AI because they're angry that chat GPT won't write them hit the novels or things like that. So let's talk about that a little bit. What do you think about the state of open source and uh, AI? 
So this is a fascinating area because people who work on AI tend to, they tend to have very altruistic purposes initially. They're like, we're going to build this new thing that will help solve all of society's problems. And for the last sort of 10 years, most AI research has been very public in as much as they publish papers, they publish source code. They tended not to publish the models themselves because of fears of what people could do with them. So OpenAI, initially it was only available to researchers. They start, the chat GPT just four months ago was the point at which they really started encouraging members of the public to interact with these things where they'd already had a lot of time to tune it and try and denazify it and so forth. But the flip side of this is if this technology is so transformational. The idea that just a few companies like Microsoft and Google and OpenAI control all of it is terrifying. Should I have to use cloud services if I want to ask personal questions about my health? I'm not comfortable doing that. There are companies that are banning ChatGPT because they don't want people copying and pasting the company's internal secrets into a text box on a website somewhere. So there's clearly a very strong ethical argument for people should be able to run this stuff themselves. The flip side is that until very recently, you needed about a $20,000 supercomputer to even run one of these models because very resource intensive. You need um, like these A100 NVIDIA cards that cost $8,000 each. You need a whole rack of those to run something like GPT-3. So I thought even if they would release the models, what am I going to do with that? I can't afford a computer that can run that. And then, well, three weeks ago, I think, Facebook Research released a new paper with an accompanying model called Llama, which was a model that was small enough that you could run it on consumer hardware, but it still had most of the capabilities of ChatGPT. I thought that was impossible. I thought to get ChatGPT, you need one of these $20,000 supercomputers. I was entirely wrong. And then Facebook made the model available to researchers. Somebody leaked it on BitTorrent, and now everyone can get hold of this model, which is like a 250 gigabyte file. So it's not a small download. But then the open source community kicked in. And within a couple of weeks, people had shrunk it to the point where I can run it on my laptop. Somebody got it running on a Raspberry Pi, this supposedly chat GPT capable model, very slowly, but on a computer that costs like $40. And uh, that's one of the big arguments for open source is that once you've got every nerd in the world playing with stuff, some of these problems like running it on a Raspberry Pi just start getting solved really, really quickly. Stanford then did a project where they took Facebook's Llama, they turned it into something called Alpaca, and they, which was tuned for instructions. So it had that, that human enforcement training. And now it really does behave like ChatGPT and it runs on a laptop. A friend of mine ran it on his laptop in a flight and used it to help him solve some physics, like questions he had about physics the other day, just like you would with ChatGPT. I'm stunned. I was absolutely blown away that this technology is now capable of running on a laptop. I thought it would take another few years at least before laptops were powerful enough to run anything like this. It runs like a Pixel 5 phone, which is like a two-year-old Android phone, can now run one of these smaller models. And so really this means the open source thing is happening and you can't put it back in the bottle. Once this files out on BitTorrent, it's on like a million computers now. It's not going away. So we have to face the fact that, yeah, 4chan, if they want to train their Nazi AI, the raw materials for them to do that are now available to them. That's a thing that is going to happen. But the flip side is the, that we can now start saying, okay, what does the world look like? What is it like to live in a world where I can run ChatGPT on my own devices independent from the internet, I can teach it new things, I can use it as a trusted personal assistant, I'm not leaking my data out to these big companies. That's fascinating. So yeah, the things I'm tracking closely at the moment is the implications of this, what happens when suddenly these models are in the hands of the public.
And there are some some more negative implications as well. The stable diffusion image generator has now been repeatedly used to generate pornographic images of people without their consent. So there are implications for that. And I think you're right that these things are not going to be uninvented. The source is not going to be deleted, but it is still nonetheless something to think about, especially with regard to future improvements to these engines or completely different ones. Chat GPT-9, should that be... (laughs) available to the public. Who knows? Ultimately, this is an area where the public needs to be having, these discussions need to be had in public and politicians have to be involved in this stuff because just simply allowing a handful of companies or universities to decide for us how these things should, what guardrails should be on them, whether they should be open source or not. These are not discussions that rightfully belong to the private sector, I think. Exactly. No, I completely agree. Uh, Just in the past week, I've seen two new demos of text-to-video things. So like Stable Diffusion, except it produces a video. And they're currently a bit shonky looking, but give it a year and you will be able to type in a scene where so where some politician is smoking cocaine wherever, and it will produce a realistic looking video. And again, we need antibodies in society. The TikTok account, which publishes videos of Barack Obama and Donald Trump playing Minecraft together, use a deep fake audio. And it's amazing. I mean, it's really realistic. Their voices sound exactly right, except they're talking about Minecraft. And I love that because anyone who's seen that video now understands that audio can be faked. And that's the sort of first step, right? We need society to at least understand that images and videos and audio can be deep faked now. I mean, the flip side is that, of course, when a video comes out of a politician doing something bad, the politician can now say, oh, it's a fake video. And I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So so there are, there are flip sides to that as well. But yeah, the idea that society needs to understand what this stuff is capable of so that it doesn't get hoodwinked, I think is really important. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation, Simon. I appreciate you being here. Let me put up on the screen your Twitter handle. So I encourage everybody to follow you. You are at Simon W. That's S-I-M-O-N-W for those who are listening. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, this has been really fun. Thanks for having me. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for being here and listening or watching or reading if you are a transcript person. Thanks for that. We've got a lot more episodes and they're coming out every Saturday now. And thanks to the support we're getting, we're able to get production into regular releases. So I really do appreciate everybody who is a subscriber. Thanks very much. So I'll see you next time.